Again, we'd like to welcome everybody back to the Football's Family Podcast. Got a special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Greg Fisseri. I'm the author of Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. This, um, I got it in, in the mail. It's it's right here in front of me, and I'm holding it up like you can see what it looks like, because this is not on video, uh, so that makes no sense. But anyway, it is a, it's an amazing book, and I can tell from just Number one, you got Franco Harris to do the to do the introduction, the forward. How did that come about? Right. That, that gives me some street cred, I guess. Right. That gives uh, you a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what an honor. Um, so growing up in Pittsburgh, you know, I met Franco a, a couple of times uh, as a fan, you know, as a young kid, got an autograph. And he sort of tells that story in the forward. Excuse me. And um, and then we play. We were both big tennis fans and we met. And players and we met at a tennis event uh, when i was at, probably in my 20s and both playing although we didn't get to play with the, you know on the court with each other and um then later about in 2012 uh we were on a committee together at the senator john hines history center in pittsburgh in their sports museum and they had a, an advisory board called the champions committee and i was big sports enthusiast and loved this museum and donated a lot of my old collectibles to them for their exhibits thought better for people to enjoy than sit in my basement so they uh invited me to be on their committee they said you're our biggest donor we'd love you to be on and i said that's really i said i'm sorry you know because i didn't feel like i did that much nobody else is doing enough for you but uh, nonetheless, I got to be on this committee and, and Franco sat at the head of the table in my first meeting as the head of the, the operation there. And we introduced ourselves. And when I mentioned what I was working on, he was really captivated and um, offered, came up to me after the meeting and, and wanted to know more. And he actually said, you know, really gave me encouragement. He said, you, you have a, an evergreen project here. So like, take your time and, and do it right. And and he said, when, when you're ready, any, anytime you need help, let me know. Um, and anything you need. And I said, wow. So uh, I said, a forward be, would be incredible. And so 10 years later, I said, I had a lot of work ahead of me. Um, he said, take your time. And uh, I circled back with him and he pretended to forget that he offered and uh, I said, he said, did I really say I do that? I, I had to track down his phone number. It was a long story. But um, he said, yeah, I said, yes. And he said, oh, I'm just kidding. Sure, I'll, I'll do it. He said, send it over. So I sent over a soft copy file and he he read the first part of it. He said, call me Monday. And and he said, wow. He said, you, you are a really good writer. And he said, there there was one part in particular that, that uh I loved. And I said, I bet I know what it is. And he said, what do you, what do you think? And I said, there's a line that I wrote and I woke up in the middle of the night with this idea and I had to run to the kitchen to write it. And it was something to the effect that we live for moments as athletes where we become more than we thought we could be. And it could be in a moment and nobody sees it. Or it could be in front of millions of people and it becomes legendary. And, and he said, that's it. He said, I love that. And I, I said, well, of course you had the immaculate reception. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. And he said, no, that's not it. He said it was the first part. He said, it's just the love of, of the, the little things that you, you might want to do and you knew you did that nobody else ever understood. And he said, I had one of those moments. He said, I, I always wanted to make this move in a game. And, and I pulled it off in a Cowboys game one time. And, and I said, was it a Super Bowl? And he said, no, it's just a regular season game. And there was this linebacker named Lewis. And I said, D.D. Lewis, I knew that guy. And he said, yes. And, and he said, I, I pulled this move on and, and, and spun him, you know, every which way and, and faked it, and juked him and I scored. And, and I just never forgot that moment. And later, years later, Didi spoke at an event I was at and he mentioned this move that I put on him. And he said, I ended up with my hand in my face mask. And he said, I loved it because he, he appreciated what I did. So he said, that's the essence of sports, you know, and, and, uh, that was really special. Well, that's something uh, I know it's more special now because Franco passed, but being a Pittsburgh native, Franco and Terry and, and all those fellas are probably on your, uh, probably have a lot of memories of them. Don't you? Of course. Um, never thinking that I would get a chance to get to know them, you know, some of them uh, as an adult and uh, got to, to meet so many of them. Um Terry, I met at a Super Bowl function in Atlanta when when it was here a few years ago. Uh, gotten to know Jerome Bettis pretty well. He lives down here in Atlanta as well, and um, he gave a quote for the book, which was really really nice. And so to say thanks, I I got a foursome at his celebrity golf event at East Lake down here for the last two years. Last year I got to play with Cordell Stewart and walk the course for all day with him, and this year with Merrill Hodge. Greg Lloyd was there. Um, just so many Joey Porter, just hog heaven for me. We could we could talk about your your Pittsburgh fandom uh, when you get a chance. You just let me know, and we'll have you back on <laughs> uh, because I love my father in law uh, was a Pittsburgh native, and when I met my wife now he uh he said uh, tell me who your football team is and i said it was the titans he said i don't know about you <laughs> i don't know about you he he uh he told me some stories his his uh one of the things we got him for his birthday was a, Jer a jerome bettis jersey with his last name on the back of it so that's we got a little connection there uh, eddie um, george was at his event by the way and it wasn't just Steelers. Uh, and i think eddie george is the biggest man i've ever i mean next to Shaq, i would say he's about the biggest man i've ever seen in person i i got a chance to meet him he signed my jersey uh i looked at that dude and i said i i'd still i think he's close to he's in his late 40s i still wouldn't want him to run me over he would no. tear me up no thank you no so let's talk about your book here um, the one thing about being on the, uh, the the sports history network is we get a lot of history. But for what I've read about it, and like I told him, I had hadn't had a chance to read the whole thing. It is an incredibly detailed book. And you said ten years, actually fifteen. Um, ten years since I uh, met Franco, but I, it actually literally it started when I was a little boy in Pittsburgh. The, the seeds were planted um, by photos on my grandmother's wall in this little town called Wilmerding, which is about 10 miles east of Pittsburgh, a, a Westinghouse air brake company suburb. The community was built around that by George Westinghouse. And I think a lot of my relatives worked, you know, for that company um, historically. And so these pictures were on her basement wall. 
and and her house was probably the nicest house in Wilmerding. Now that wasn't not saying much by you know many standards, but for for Wilmerding, you know, because it was an old you know industrial town, and and her home was built in 1898, but it was it still had a finished basement, which was really unusual. Which uh, most houses had cellars, which were dirty, you know, dusty places. Oh yeah. So they had a a pool table and a TV, and I could hang out down there, and and these photos were were on the wall. So somehow I connected the fact that my great grandfather was a a great professional football player before the NFL with, from these photos. Two were the Maslin Tigers in Maslin, Ohio in 1905 and 06. And one was kind of unidentified. They had some H's on their sweaters. And that turned out to be a homestead Pennsylvania team near Pittsburgh from 1901. Little did I know at the time that they were all world championship teams. <laughs> so um knew that there was a lot there she even showed me a book that uh history of football that had some of the, those team pictures in them so i'm like this is real this is you know she's not just making up you know exaggerated stories and when she died in 2007 now that was you know about 15 years ago that's when i i another things went to another level and I cleaned out her home and I found another box of, of smaller, but a lot of, you know, of photos from his football career. And I instantly knew that they were really special. Some of them were identified, many weren't. And that's when I started connecting with the pro football research community and the historians. And there was a fellow named Bob Carroll in Pittsburgh that started the, uh, the PFRA pro football researchers association in 1979 and he was my first mentor sort of in, in, in the in the hobby, if you will. And he said, you have to go see Joe Horrigan out at, in, in Canton because he's the executive director at the Hall of Fame. And they had worked together on a lot of the, the best early research that was online. And uh, he said, you know, you've got things that nobody else has. So they'll be crazy about it. <laughs> and off I went in... Uh, five years later i did some more a lot of homework to figure things out before i got out there so i knew what i was talking about and went with my mother actually because it was her grandfather and what you know we wheeled drove out there with all these photos big ones small ones and we wheeled them into the conference room and joe and salim chowdhury and a, a bunch of the you know pretty well-known guys there what took a, an hour long meeting turned into three hours because they were so fascinated and, and uh, passionate about what I had. They said, they, Joe said, this is like finding an original constitution to us. You know, you, we don't have much from this time at all. Yes. Your great grandfather was the best center of the pre NFL era. Um, you know, can we borrow these and make some copies and put them in our exhibits in our new expansion? I said, of course, and um, he actually, they must get all kinds of requests because Joe said, like, what do, you, what do you want? You know, like I was coming for something, you know, and, and I said, I didn't want anything. I just came to enjoy these with you, see what you would like to do with them and um, see if you think they're important and maybe see if my great grandfather belongs in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And uh, along with some of these other, you know, pre NFL players. And he said, well, that's another story altogether. And I, I said, maybe that was my purpose in the whole thing to somehow honor these guys and including him. And he said, hmm, probably not going to happen. 
<laughs> at least at excuse me that time i think they're coming around to it but at that time they, they didn't feel like they had enough information on on the group to differentiate between a lot of them he said there's probably 20 of them that are deserving and we don't know how to you know we can't put them all in at least at once maybe there's an exhibit you know so i think they're I think my work has helped them to differentiate some of these people. And we've talked about it last year at, at or uh, maybe it was two years ago now at the last PFRA conference when he spoke in Canton and uh, I did as well. And he was more encouraging. He, he said, you know, with a lot of this new information available, he said, there's definitely a need to recognize them. So we'll see where that goes. But um, that's been kind of the journey. So this is your your main focus. Your main focus on this is pre NFL, if I understood that correctly. Now I did, I did read over that, and I wanted to make sure that people knew the years that you're talking about. So, technically, um, the definition of the beginning of professional football would be the day that somebody got paid to play, and that turned out to be 1892. So that was 28 years before the NFL was founded in 1920 in Canton. So that's why a lot of people think pro football started in Canton because the Hall of Fame is there. But they call themselves the cradle of pro football and recognizing that Pittsburgh is the birthplace. And after 10 years of trying unsuccessfully to make profit with pro football, the teams vanished. They, they merged and went bankrupt. And that was the end of it. Um, but just to put a finer point on the 1892 thing, there was an Allegheny Athletic Association was one of the fine main five main amateur teams in Pittsburgh, and they paid $500, according to an accounting ledger that surfaced at the Hall of Fame in the 60s, courtesy of the Steelers and the Roonies somehow, which nobody even there seems to remember exactly how it happened. But they they came upon this accounting ledger with that they called the birth certificate of pro football and is on display in their first exhibit in the rotunda there in Canton, which is a timeline. And it shows that this fellow named William Pudge Heffelfinger, who was an all American from, from Yale was paid $500 in cash, a huge sum of money at the time to help beat their rival Pittsburgh athletic club four to nothing, which was one touchdown at the time and and he scored on a fumble recovery. So he earned his pay. Um, so that said, 10 years later, 1902 is the last chance in Pittsburgh to save the pro game. And they even brought on Christy Mathewson, who was one of the greatest pitchers of all time and played some college football at Bucknell to play for the Pittsburgh stars. And my great grandfather was on that team as well. Um, and so his homestead, team in 1901 won the world championship and by beating a team from philadelphia and then they beat the philadelphians again in a sort of two out of three kind of thing in 1902 it's a little murky and controversial but they declared themselves the world champions anyway for winning the last game and but after that pro football it just was defunct they didn't think it was going to make it however there was some good a a amateur teams out in ohio particularly uh, I think Akron had been winning most of the state championships and Canton and Maslin were in the mix. Yeah. Maslin in particular 
It's a fabulous little town there. It sort of has a little brother complex sort of to, to Canton and can't stand losing to them in anything. So <laughs> to this day, um, in their high school rivalry, which was amazing, at war since 1894, as they say. And um, so the, the Maslin folks came up with the bright idea to bring my great-grandfather, Bob Shiring, out to Maslin with three of his teammates to uh, win the state championship and beat Canton and Akron. And that they did. And nobody quite knew what was going on at the time. It was kind of under the table, but people figured it out and said, well, if that's the way it's going to be, they all went out and got the best players in the country to come to Ohio. And, and it really took off pro for, for the next few years. Uh, all the Philadelphians came to Canton and, and all the Western Pennsylvania guys came to Maslin. And then they started cherry picking guys from Michigan and Notre Dame and, and everywhere else they could get them. And the, <laughs> the drama in the newspapers was incredible, incredibly rich. But what they were doing is, was trying to sell papers by and that's how a rivalry stirred you know and so for for their own benefit and then um they're also trying to sell tickets so and, and the maslin sports writer was also the the uh the guy who who was the original maslin amateur quarterback and he was the also the manager of the team so he's kind of conflicted here and um bashing canton all the time in the newspapers for his own team's glory but um Nonetheless, they start poaching players from each other. They, they really start hating each other. And um, in particular, Philado um, the Philadelphia captain, who, who's, who's really overlooked in history, his name was Blondie Wallace. He, he was an icon at Penn, uh, All-American, world uh, national champion. And he basically started pro football in Philadelphia with the help of Connie Mack, who was the Philadelphia baseball manager from the for Philadelphia athletics. And they called their first football team, the Philadelphia athletics. And he got Mack to invest. And Mack later said he lost his shirt on the whole thing, but you know, they, they enjoyed the effort. And so when that didn't work out like financially, Canton decided to bring him out to compete with, with Maslin and, and then Blondie brought all of his pen buddies and Philadelphia buddies and Ivy League buddy. So it was really a, a culture war. Uh, basically, a lot of the Ivy League, you know, elites from from the other side of the state to the blue collar folks from Western Pennsylvania um, and and Maslin, some of the original locals, they had some all Ivy League All-Americans, too. But um, the, the culture animosity was part of the interesting story so uh as it goes on it, it really it all led to the dramatic year of 1906 and uh it was a transformational year in football history the, the rules changed dramatically more than any other year the forward pass was yeah. legalized that year um, Teddy roosevelt had a lot to do with that didn't he right a after 20 plus deaths in 1905 and a dramatic incident in the Penn Swarthmore game where Tiny Maxwell, a famous player for Swarthmore, was bloodied um, by the Penn quarterback Vince Stevenson on the, maybe the last play of the game when you know they 
Stevenson told him to relax. The game was over. He played the greatest game they've ever seen. And then instead of kneeling down, he runs through the line and blasts him in the face with his forearm and shattered his nose and blood everywhere. So that was the last straw for Roosevelt. And he said, we've got to clean up the game. And if you don't do it, I'll do it for you. So he formed a committee that became the NCAA with um, John Heisman, Amos Alonzo Stagg, Walter Camp, father of American football, presidents of Harvard, Penn, and Princeton. Uh, I'm sorry, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And and do what, it, what you have to do. And so they came up. They, before it passed, it had been discussed for a long time, never approved, finally approved it. 10 yards instead of five for a first down, no more flying wedge B formation. That was very brutal. They created a line of scrimmage and a neutral zone. So transformational year from the beginning of the year. Um, so the first forward pass is thrown that year forever. Uh, people thought a fellow named George Peggy Parrott threw the pass for, for Maslin. That was how it's gone down in history for over a hundred years. And I, I found some newspapers from Maslin that showed otherwise, you know, it was one of their other players. Parrott was hurt uh, in the second game of the season. And a fellow named Charlie Moran, who became a famous baseball umpire later in his life, um, actually clearly through the forward pass, according to this article. So it's a little rabbit hole. It was fun. So therefore, my great-grandfather threw the first – or snapped the ball for the first forward pass. <laughs> but a um, little trivia. Do you, but do, you have any, do, do you have any footballs from that from that age? I do, and I love them. The melon balls—they um, are funny looking, and I bet you they're awesome. They're they're great. Some are in better condition, uh, others a um, little restored, and some are pretty raw. Some are deflated. Uh, some have writing on it from certain games. I have a a Penn Brown uh, college game ball from 1905. I have a Michigan game ball from 1899. It's incredible. Um, but uh, the, the helmets are actually a little more fun because they're so di different. Like there's the, like these skeleton looking things. There's um, is that the, one of them in, in the background? I, I probably uh, well, is it, uh, no. I, uh, well, maybe maybe over there you could see. A, yeah, a, yes, sir. It it looks like yeah. uh, I, I can't tell color, but it looks like on the one, two, three, four up. Yes, you can see a ball and a helmet up there. Oh, there's a ball too. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, ha I have a great man cave. Yes, you do. Uh, and your, and your great grandfather was involved with this. So not only is it something that you wanted to do, but it's kind of like a family thing for you. Well, that's certainly how it started out. And I have no idea how big it would get. And it, it was just going to be a little family genealogy project, but the mystery that, that, and the key to the whole story in the 1906 season is as a scandal that even I heard about from my grandmother that was the most outstanding piece of lore that some gamblers tried to bribe him as the captain of the team to fix uh, and get his teammates to fix the world championship game with the Canton Bulldogs. Actually, there was a two-game series set up, home and home, and that he wouldn't do it. He was known, she loved the fact that he was an honest man and, and uh, his integrity and character, and she would say that he only had an eighth grade education, like many, you know, blue collar kids in Pittsburgh. And he had to go to work to help support the family at age 13. But somehow he rose to be the captain of a group of Ivy league educated, all American players, which is says something special about who he was. So I, I really was inspired to understand who was the patriarch of our family. And 
started a business that enabled them to build this nice home and, and start our family down the road to the American dream. Um, so it, it was, that was what it was really all about. But when I wanted to know what happened in this scandal, right. And this, and, and I could never find a book or much of an article, there's just a sentence or two here and there in some history books. And even like, you know, the, the experts quote unquote from the PFRA and others had never, there was a really good article, you know, on the PFRA site about the scandal, but, but what was clear was it was never known what happened and who was behind it. And if they were, if Blondie Wallace was guilty or not. Like my great grandfather's quickly exonerated because he reported it, but the Maslin paper accused him of colluding in it and he denied it and he could not clear his name. So he went down in history as sort of a villain and, and maybe the reason why the origin story of the game is lost because people wanted to sweep the scandal under the rug and forget that it happened and didn't want that to be kind of, you know, the, the, the origin story. So, but it wasn't clear. Yeah. He, he, he filed a suit and there were breadcrumbs. So he sued the paper and the team, the Maslin on the Maslin side for libel, but he was just a player without much money, if any, because he lost his shirt trying to support the team himself in 1906. He was so brave and passionate to that they lost money in 1905. The Canton club wouldn't support the team. So he took financial responsibility for all the salaries himself. I mean, so a real pioneer of the game. And, and so he, he was losing money and he couldn't pay some of the players. And, and so there, there was part of the reason they believed he started gambling and let the gamblers infiltrate, you know, to try to save, you know, the team. And, and so it was never clear because he couldn't pay his ongoing legal costs, what happened? And But there were depositions taken and that was published. So I'm like, hmm, there could be a file out there. And so I went on a hunt and I started going around courthouses in the area. And sure enough, we found the court file. 250 pages of depositions from players and managers and, and people in the, involved in the situation that tell an incredibly interesting story about what really happened. And, and it, so forever, it, it clearly presents um, the truth about the situation and gives these heroes and pioneers of the game a much better story, you know, for, for history and, and, and without spoiling it. I, I see a lot of passion in what you did. And not only that, Mr. Greg, I see a lot of passion in you about the story uh we just got a, a few more minutes left if you don't mind can you if you can give us maybe a three-minute story about something that you found that's interesting to you that you didn't know about mm -hmm. perfect question to end so i think the three most unique things about the book are the photos uh, yes. the original, never published before uh never published photos. Photos. over 300 images in the book a lot of colorful things Ticket stubs, pennants, helmets, balls, things to go with all of the black and white photos. Um, the court case, number two. And finally, in my journey, uh, thanks to that same day with Franco, there was a fellow in the room with an old sports writer from Homestead, Pennsylvania, ironically. And when I mentioned my great-grandfather play for them, he lit up 
and said, wow, you have to go over there and see what you can find about the team. I said, over where? I said, the building, the club. It's still, I said, it's still there? He said, the building's there, but it's under a different name. It's like, oh, aha, light bulb goes on. It's now what used to be the Homestead Library and Athletic Club is now the Carnegie Library of Homestead. I'm like, who knew? So he gives me a name. Long story short, I take a tour with this fellow. They didn't, they love their history, Homestead Grays, Negro League, Josh Gibson, blah, blah, you know, but nothing about this team. And, but they were super interested. So we look around, we fish around, we get into their storage closet and boom, on the top shelf, there were the championship trophies from 1900 and 1901. Oh, wow. The first known world championship pro football trophies before the Lombardi trophy 50 years before or more 60. So we're like, Oh my gosh, these are probably the first, you know, this is the Holy grail of, of pro football. So we called the the hall of fame on the spot and they said, absolutely. We want them. And so now they're uh, ones in the rotunda in the first exhibit with that birth certificate of pro football. And the second one from 1900 has been going around the country on a traveling exhibit called gridiron glory with the hall of fame for several years i think it's now in myrtle beach maybe on a more permanent basis you there's know a, what? i saw it mm-hmm. there's a i yeah, saw it uh, i haven't been there yet january i was there january and i saw it and it didn't dawn on me till you said it excuse me sir. <laughs> uh, tennessee is kicking my tail right now with all the pulp bless you bless but yeah, I saw it. That's that's amazing. Good gracious. Yeah. It's a shape of a football. It's got two handles on the side and a cup. It's it's like a loving cup, they call it. It's not the prettiest thing that you'll ever see, but it's it's fascinating. It, it's not bad looking. I, I was No, I, it's not. The 1901 one is probably more spectacular. It's a big shinier bowl, like the, the top of the Stanley Cup. And maybe that's why it's in in the rotunda. But oh. uh if you were to look at it and say, is this a championship trophy? That would not be the first thing that would pop up in your head. Right. But it was 1900. You know. <laughs> 1900. Yeah. Give them a break. I'll give them, I'll give them more than one break. They, I'm looking at your book. Where can we find it? Thanks for asking. Uh, gridironlegacy.com is the book's website. And I, um, you can purchase it there and I'll, be glad to send out signed copies to anybody that purchases and uh last week it went on uh, national on amazon barnes nobles and retailers everywhere so go get it it's it's time like i said this book is i haven't had a chance to read all of it yet but i've read read parts of it it's fantastic you put you could tell you have a lot of uh a lot of passion for this project and that's exactly what the football's family is all about mr greg i do appreciate that passion that that to me uh is respectable not only because it's family but it's obvious that you love this this information you love you love the 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 story and you love the history thanks a lot i appreciate that and and at the end in, in sort of in the epilogue of the book I, I i take time to try to encourage other people to do the same in, in their own story because i think many of us have great stories to to hunt down and we have a special opportunity in our generation to use family lore that we've heard and combine it with the research that we can do online and other places to to do similar things. And um, that's what I really want to uh, encourage people to to try.
thank you again. Thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it very much. Thanks. All right. Thank you all for listening.